Jeremiah chapter 4, starting in verse, uh, verse 5. Please follow along. I'm going uh, to preach from three chapters this morning. I'm just going to read the beginning and the end, and then we're going to work through the rest during my sermon. All right? Starting in verse, verse 5. Declare in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem and say, Blow the trumpet through the land and cry aloud and say, Assemble and let us go into the fortified cities. Raise a standard toward Zion. Flee for safety. Stay not. For I bring disaster from the north and great destruction. A lion has gone up from his thicket. A destroyer of nations has set out. He has gone out from his place to make your land a waste. Your cities will be ruined with inhabitants. For this, put on sackcloth and lament and wail. For the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned back from us. Skip over to chapter 6, verse 27. It reads this, I have made you a tester of metals, God speaking to Jeremiah, among my people, that you may know and test their ways. They are all stubbornly rebellious, going about with slanders, they are bronze and iron, all of them corrupt. The bellows blow fiercely. The lead is consumed by the fire. In vain, the refining goes on, for the wicked are not removed. Rejected silver, they are called, for the Lord has rejected them. We see here at the beginning of chapter 4, judgment is certain, judgment is coming. And God likens Jeremiah and his words to that of a refining fire. But there is nothing to refine, for Israel is impure metal. And destruction is coming their way. With that, let's pray and ask God's help as we come into this, these uh, fairly difficult chapters. Father, we thank you for your grace to those of us who were once vessels of destruction. We thank you for making us new. We thank you for cleaning us up and turning us, turning us into, into a vessel of honor. God, we ask that you would help us as we examine these chapters and get into this text. Speak to us through your Holy Spirit. For the sake of Christ, we pray. Amen. A husband and wife were sitting at the uh, table having breakfast together one morning, and uh, the husband's sitting there scrolling through Facebook, and, and he comes across this one meme, and he says, ah, look at this. And he says, according to a recent study, women talk twice as much as men do. And his wife says and probably rightly so, she says, well, it's because we have to repeat ourselves. <laughs> and he looks up from his phone and says, what'd you say? <laughs> listen, men, uh, take note. We would do well to listen uh, to the women, women that are in our lives. Amen? amen. Ladies, amen. <laughs> and for all of us, let's take note. We would do well to listen to God, to listen to God's word, 
as we read it, as it's preached, as we hear it, to listen to God's Word. But here's the thing. We have a hearing problem. We really do. Like even right now, probably three or four of you are already zoning out and don't remember what I just said. Yeah, <laughs> well, what? What's, what did that story have to do with anything? We have a hearing, if, listen, if we have trouble listening to other humans, how much more do we have trouble hearing God's word? You know, often uh, we, we, we read his word, we hear his word, and we don't get anything out of, uh, out of it. Some of us have grown up in church, and we know, we feel like at least, we know his word front and back, but it hasn't penetrated our hearts. It hasn't impacted our lives. We still go on living in the way that we always have lived. Because of sin, we are deaf to God's word. I want to talk to you this morning on this theme and this question. Do you hear God's word? Do you hear it? Because really the issue with Israel, and this is the, what I want to draw out of the, these three chapters this morning, chapter 4 through chapter 6. The issue with Israel is that they did not hear God's word. It was proclaimed, it was clear, and they did not hear it. L let me just show you this in the text. Look at chapter 6, verse 10. This verse summarizes the problem. He says, to whom shall I speak and give a warning that they may hear? Who can I talk to? God is rhetorically asking. He says, behold, their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. When they hear the word of God, it's, it's not nice. It's not pleasurable. And he, he says they have uncircumcised ears. We saw last week in Jeremiah that, that they have uncircumcised hearts. Their hearts are not marked to, uh, 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 to be set apart for the service of God. And here we see that their ears are not marked. Oh, friends, who can circumcise the ears but God himself? We need new ears. We need ears that will hear the word of God. For what purpose? Look at verse 16. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Where is the good way? And walk in it. Find the rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. The issue is this, friends. You are standing at a crossroads. No different than the people of old. We are at a crossroads every day of our lives. We are going to make decisions every day that affect the rest of our lives. Friends, we make decisions that affect our eternity. Why do we need to hear God's word? It's so that we walk the right path. It's so that we might be on the path of life. So that we might, might know Christ. And live our lives as lives lived for Christ. Now the issue is, is simply this. 
God's word conflicts with our flesh. You know, we have like sinful desires. You guys know that? Are you tracking with me? And God's word conflicts with sinful desires. And so then as a result of the conflict, we say, well, I don't want the ancient paths. I don't want the well-trod paths. I don't want the the paths that my grandma took. I want a new path. I want a path that will allow me to enjoy the sin that I want to partake in. Oh, and so then we have forms of Christianity. We have Christianity, quote-unquote, that is sort of remade, which allows us to take, quote-unquote, new paths. you got pastors all over the place trying to come up with new paths, new forms of Christianity, new messages. No, we want the old paths. Why? It's because those are the paths that lead to life. Yesterday at our retreat, we briefly talked about Elizabeth Elliot, who moved to the Alka Indians, who moved with her children to live among the very tribe that killed their father for the sake of the gospel. Why? Why? It's because she was someone walking these old paths. She was someone who heard the word of God, and it gave her life, and it gave her the kind of life that drove her to a radical mission. What path are you on, we might ask ourselves. This is our fourth sermon in uh, Jeremiah, and as you can see, we've quickly got to a theme of judgment. Jeremiah wastes no time, does he? This is an issue. This is really what Jeremiah is all about, is judgment. This is why I say 2018 is the year of judgment for the Garden Church. Just kidding. But judgment is indeed a theme here, and in fact, it's sort of a horror story. In chapter 4, verse 7, there's an image used of the coming uh, kingdom that is going to destroy Israel, and they're called a lion. In chapter 4, verse 11, Babylon is called a scorching wind. In chapter 6, verse 11, or 22 and 23, the, the horses of their armies are likened to the roaring of the seas. This is the image of the kingdoms of the north that are about to trample upon Israel. So what we see in this horror story for us is a warning of what happens, what it looks like, if you would. It's a real live picture of those who fail to listen to God's word. Look at chapter 4, verse 23. He says, I looked, behold, it was without form and void into the heavens. They had no light. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man, and all the birds of the air had fled. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a desert, and all the cities were laid in ruins before the Lord. Without form and void. Where do we see those words? Genesis. This is like a post-apocalyptic horror story. Meaning creation is being rolled back, rewinded. 
God is saying, I was the gracious creator that put everything into order. And because you have not listened to my word, I'm taking away all order. Everything is going to be laid to waste. Creation itself is going to be reversed. There's a description in chapter 5. Look at chapter 5, verse 15. A description of the coming kingdom of Babylon. Let me read this to you. He says, Behold, I'm bringing against you a nation from afar. Oh, house of Israel, declares the Lord. It is an enduring nation. It is an ancient nation. A nation whose language you do not know, nor you can understand what they say. Their quiver is like an open tomb. They are all mighty warriors. They shall eat up your harvest and your food. They shall eat up your sons and your daughters. They shall eat up your flocks and your herds. They shall eat up your vines and your fig trees, your fortified cities in which you trust. Now, and then as we go on in chapter 6, verses 1 through 9, not only do we see this description of this kingdom that's coming to bring about desolation, but we see in these verses that God is actually the primary actor behind it. Now, l- let me just pause for a second. Babylon, on their own accord, is an empire in history that grew and that sacked all sorts of nations and spread their empire through warfare. And what God is saying is, is that ultimately the primary cause behind what's about to happen is God. God is actually moving behind Babylon and using Babylon as his tool of judgment in Israel. And so in chapter 6, verses 1 through 9, we see this. We see, look, for instance, look at verse 2. He says, the lovely and delicate bread I will destroy. I will destroy the daughter of Zion, God says. I'm the one doing this. Look at verse 6. Here it's as if God is directing the armies of Babylon. He says, for thus says the Lord of hosts, cut down her trees, cast up a siege mount against Jerusalem. This is the city that must be punished. There is nothing but oppression within her. And as we have seen, and as chapter 6 verse 11 through 15 reiterates, no one will escape. Children, young men, husbands, wives, houses, fields. It's all going to be turned over. It's all going to be rolled back. It's all going to be brought down. Now, question that we have to ask at this point is is simply this. Is God too harsh? What do you guys think? Is God being too harsh? Well, God, I think, foresees that question, and a lot of what we see here, particularly uh, in chapter 5 and chapter 6, is God answering that question. Or, in other words, God is giving a moral necessity for this judgment. Here's what I mean by moral necessity. If someone were to steal $20 from you, what is the moral necessity? Come on, you guys, help me out here. Give it back! You guys forget what moral necessity uh, would look like when it comes to somebody taking $20? 
Okay, what if someone were to take the life of your loved one? Now, what is the moral necessity? Justice. What does justice look like, though? Oh, I know, we're getting into some... <laughs> How many of you would be cool if someone committed first-degree murder and that person stood before the judge and the judge said, eh, slap on the wrist? Why? Why are we not afraid to say that a life is required? Now, death penalty, we can, that's a totally different conversation. But what I'm just simply saying is there is a moral necessity, a life for a life. You take the life of a family member, you better at least be sitting in jail. Like, there's got to be some, something done for taking my family member's life. This is moral necessity. Are you tracking with me? Now, that's all sinning against infinite or I'm sorry, finite human beings. What if someone sins against an infinite God? Now, what is the moral necessity? We can't, we can't even begin to understand it. Like, God has done so much for these people. And they have outright rejected Him. And as we've seen he, as he speaks, oh, such grace that is, they don't even find pleasure in his words. So God gives the moral necessity. Let me, let me just kind of break it down in two different ways. I think there's two themes here. First, there's disobedience and immorality. Secondly, there is greed and injustice. First, disobedience and immorality. Let me just point these out to you. Look at chapter 4, verse 18. He says, your ways and your deeds have brought this upon you. Your de- uh, uh, this is your doom. It is bitter. It has reached your very heart. This is due to your own conduct. This is due to your own actions. And what were those actions? Look at verse 22. At the end of verse 22 in particular, he says, they are wise in doing evil. But how to do good, they don't, they don't know. Listen, there are some people who are wise in doing evil. There are some people who are like, man, all I know is how to sell drugs. I've had someone tell me once, my specialty in life is getting high. I am so good at it. Like, I don't know, now that I've like stopped getting high, I just feel like I've lost my identity. All I know is how to get a girl in bed or get a man in bed all I know like where I excel is when it comes to sinful activity that's what I'm good at and guys if you've ever lived for the world you know exactly what I'm talking about don't you and and the things that like would actually contribute to humanity we haven't even excelled in those areas We haven't even worked on how to love our neighbor. We haven't even worked on these people skills that it takes to not be a jerk in society. We don't know how to do good. This is the issue of Israel. They were excellent at sin. And they hadn't even been trained or given the time what it looks like to be a person of obedience. 
Also, we see greed and injustice through here. Look at chapter 5, verse 26 through 29. He says, For wicked men are found among my people. They lurk like fowlers, lying in wait. They set a trap, they catch men. Like a cage full of birds, their houses are full of deceit. Therefore, they have become great and rich. They have grown fat and sleek. They know no bounds in, do, in deeds of evil. They judge not with justice the cause of the fatherless uh, to make it prosper. And they do not defend the rights of the needy. And then he goes on and he asks this question, shall I not punish them for these things? Don't you realize that one of the big issues in Israel was injustice? They're described as fat and sleek. I don't know what sleek means, but maybe they're eating so much that they're just, it's coming out of their pores and it's just, they're, 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 their hair is just sleek with the oil of the, the meat that they're, oh man. All right, stop Joel, please, stop. But the picture is pretty, pretty powerful. And then he goes on and says, you don't even, you don't even care about the fatherless. Like, there are thousands of kids in the foster care system in Baltimore. Do we think of them? Do we pray for them? The poor, the downtrodden, the ones for whom society has not really worked. You don't care about them. You're all about yourselves. You're all about consuming. It's greed. And he asks this question, what, what do you think I should do? Should I not punish them for that? You see, God is giving a moral necessity to bring this judgment on those who have rejected his word. The problem is summed up in chapter 6, verse 10, which we've already read. They don't have ears to hear. They're not hearing the word of God. Now, friends, God has spoken to us. He's given us 66 books. We believe this to be the inspired word of God. He's spoken with clarity. The question that I want to ask you today is, are you hearing God's word? So how do we hear God's word? Well, let's walk through this together a little bit. First, in contrast to Israel, all right? First, the church must have leaders who preach it. The church must have leaders who preach it. Could you imagine going to a doctor who doesn't tell the truth? A doctor who has a lying problem in the office? Like, what if you had a kind of a lump coming out of your head? You're like, this isn't good. I've got this thing coming out of my skull here. You go to the doctor, and he looks at you, scans you, whatever they do. And uh, he says, you know, it's just, it's just a cyst. It's just a really big cyst. It'll pop. Don't worry about it. It'll go away. All right. My head's killing me. It'll be fine. Take, take some ibuprofen. All the while, he's in speaking with his assistants and saying, man, this guy's dying. Like, 
has a fast-growing brain tumor. He only has a couple weeks left. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I can't tell him that. <laughs> Can you tell him? Listen, if you're going to be my doctor, you need to, like, first rule, you need to tell me the truth. And if you're going to be my preacher, you need to tell me the truth. And sometimes the truth doesn't sound nice, right? But look, that's not your job to be nice all the time. If you're a doctor, you get that, right? It's your job to tell the truth. Now do it gently. Act like you care. But tell the truth. The problem with Israel is their leaders aren't telling the truth. They're outright lying to them. The prophets, he says, have lied. Look at chapter 4, verse 4 and 5. He says, then I said, these are only the poor, they have no sense, for they will not know the way of the Lord, the, the justice of their God. I will go to the great and speak to them, for they know the way of the Lord, the justice of the God. But they all alike have broken the yoke and burst the bonds. Now here what he's talking about is he went to the people, the people have rejected the word, and going to the great, what he means is the leaders of the community. Maybe they'll listen, and the leaders of the community, meaning the prophets and the priests in their case, have rejected the Lord, they've broken the bonds, they've thrown, it, they've, they've, they've thrown off uh, the way of the Lord. And in chapter 5, verse 12, we see what they are doing instead. It says they have spoken falsely, of the Lord and have said he will do nothing no disaster will come upon us nor shall we see sword or famine the prophets are outright saying he's not gonna do anything no biggie like everybody don't worry the way that we're living our lives is fine God is happy with you Oh, yeah, you got Jeremiah over there. Tell him to dry his tears. He's got issues. You're fine. And what are they saying? What are they saying? Look at verse 6 and verse 13. Or chapter 6, I'm sorry. Chapter 6, verse 13. From the least to the greatest... Everyone is greedy for unjust gain. From the prophet to the priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly by saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. They've healed the wound. In other translations, it's, it's translated, they've dressed the wounds. Meaning, these people are dying of a gunshot wound. And instead of doing the surgery that it takes to heal them, to bring healing, they're just simply putting a Band-Aid on it. They're just simply just trying to dress up the wounds and make it look better. They're declaring peace when there is no peace. Well, let's break this down. Dressing the wounds. People want to feel better, right? People come into church feeling guilty. Why? Because they've sinned. <laughs> and there are some 
preachers and pastors who just simply want to make them feel better. That is their goal. To just simply dress the wounds without bringing any kind of healing. One popular TV preacher was asked in an interview, the interviewer asked, he said, don't you feel like you're cheating your people by not telling them about hell? His response was, no. He says, people are beat down by life. And when they come to church, they need to be uplifted. And I just try to uplift them. Friends, they're, they're, they're just dressing the wounds. Man, we need a preacher that tells the truth. We need a doctor that tells the truth. Don't just dress my wounds. They declare peace when there is no peace. And this, friends, leads to destruction. That's the crazy thing. You see, people are on the wrong path. They're on this new path that they've created. And that path is leading them to destruction. And the prophets are saying there's peace. There's going to be peace. Don't worry about it. The prophets, it says, uh, says elsewhere in here, are going to be appalled when the destruction comes. They're going to be shocked. Because all along they've been declaring peace when there is no peace. Like, we can't justify a false preacher because he's nice. No, let me, I don't want to kind of beat the doctor analogy to death, but in the same way, like, I, will, I want my doctor to be more truthful than I want him to be nice. <laughs> right? Like, be kind. <laughs> but nice, that's not really what I'm looking for in her. You know what I'm saying? Like a good doctor, the gospel of Jesus Christ comes with precision in our lives and identifies our problem. And our problem is a cancer called sin. Now, if you're not a Christian, let me just pause for a second, because you're thinking, you know, sometimes I wonder, what, what do non-Christians think? Talk to me about it. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Sometimes I wonder, like, non-Christians might be thinking, at this point, I need to get out of here. <laughs> this place is crazy. All they're doing is talking about judgment. Now, listen, if you're not a Christian, let me, let me encourage you with something here. Christians, so we are people who want the truth and believe the truth and find the truth pleasurable. And it's because the truth doesn't stop right here with what we're talking about. The cancer doesn't consume us. We, like, the grave is defeated. Death is no more. Why? It's because the gospel comes in, identifies the problem, and then Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, performs this amazing surgery. And he gives us a new heart. And he gives us new ears. And he wakes us up from the dead. And he makes us aware of our sins so that we no longer want to live in it so that we can live for Christ. Do you know Christ? Do you know this great physician? Have you ever had that kind of heart surgery? Friends, run to him. Cling to him. Plead, Father, forgive me of my sins. And all who come to Christ are forgiven. And are given a new life. Are given new ears. Come. Come to him. Know him.
Secondly, so Israel's prophets lied. Secondly, Israel's prophets ruled on their own authority. Meaning we need church leaders to preach, teach, lead on the authority of, come on, Christ found in, which Christ? The biblical Christ, right? <laughs> the Jesus we find in the Bible, all right? We just did a conference called Sola Scriptura, and we did it for the Baltimore church as a whole. It was a wonderful conference. And uh, the, uh, the idea behind the Sola Scriptura conference was just simply this. The Bible is our final authority. It's not our only authority. There are other authorities. Teachers can be an authority. Politici or, uh, government leaders can be an authority. Uh, parents can be an authority. But the Bible is our final authority. The Bible trumps all other authorities. No pun intended, seriously. Thank thankfully, nobody got it. But seriously, no pun intended with that. <laughs> Look at chapter 5, verse 30 and 31. He says, a, a, an appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely. The priests rule at their own direction. Or in other words, in the original language, on their own authority. They're standing on their own wisdom. They're standing on the authority that they can kind of conjure up with their studies and with the things that they can think of. We don't need church leaders to stand on their own authority. As a matter of fact, when Joel Kerr's or Montrell or any other future elder that comes into this church, whenever we speak, if we are not standing on the authority of God's word, we have no authority. You see what I'm saying? Like if, I, if you're over at my house, I'm like, hey man, could you go get me a glass of water? That's purely a request. <laughs> Like, you can say no. You don't have to obey. <laughs> Yet, true story, I was just talking to a guy last week. He said a friend of his is looking for a new church because he was in church and the pastor was preaching and as a, as a test of the man's faith, he said, give me, your, give me your watch. And he said, the pastor stole my watch. I hope this brother comes to our church. <laughs> we need to buy him a watch so he's on time, all right? I mean, that's clearly abuse, and that's a pretty extreme example, but there's a lot of smaller, more subtle examples I could give you of ways that pastors and elders just simply teach and preach on their own authority with their own ideas, their own wisdom. Guys, give me the word. This is why we preach from the Word. If I ever get up here, and I've said this to you before, and I say, hey, don't worry, just keep your Bibles closed today. I just want to talk to you guys. Everybody just say, wait, pause, Montreal, get up there. <laughs> Give us the Word. Give us the Word. This is where we stand. This is the authority we have. So in contrast to Israel's leaders, we need leaders who tell the truth, we need leaders who lead and preach and teach from the authority of God's word. Now, the crazy thing, the very next line in verse 31 of chapter 5, it says that the people love it to have so. 
or love to have it so. Meaning the people like it that way. So all that's going on, there, aren't, there isn't a congregation rising up saying this is not good. There's no congregation taking up their responsibility as the people of God telling the leaders, you're fired. It says the people like it this way. They like being lied to. They like priests ruling on their own authority. Well, first, so we we need church leaders who preach the truth. Secondly, we need churches filled with people who hear the truth, who have ears to hear the truth. This is our second point. R.C. Sproul, recently passed pastor and theologian, whom I greatly respect. And I would often listen to his sermons at St. Andrew's Chapel in Sanford, Florida. And after R.C. Sproul would read his morning text that he's going to preach from, every time when he's finished with the text, he says, those who have ears to hear, let them hear. What Sproul understands is that not everybody in the congregation had ears to hear the spiritual word that's being put out. Do you? Do you? We need congregations who hear, receive the truth. This is the main point, I think, of this passage. They're not hearing the word. So in chapter 4, verse 30, they, they hear it. They hear Jer- what Jeremiah is saying, but he goes on to say that they're just putting on jewelry and making their eyes beautiful and going out and clubbing with their idols. Like, you're not hearing it, and you're continuing in the destructive behavior. In chapter 5, verse 20 through 25, it says, God made the sea, God sends the rain, and you don't fear him when he speaks. In chapter 6, verse 10, as we've already reiterated so many times, it says the problem is that they have these ears that are uncircumcised, that are not marked to hear God's word. And finally, in chapter 6, verse 19, as a result of not listening to God's word, disaster is coming upon them. Listen, there are preachers and teachers who say we need to make new paths. We need to come up with new forms of Christianity. And there are a lot of people who like it. There are a lot of churches, so-called churches, that are walking these new paths. And then we read about them and we hear about them and we think, man, maybe we're on the wrong path. Do we need new paths? Do we need new stories? When I was a kid growing up, we used to sing this hymn, and, and, and it was called The Old, Old Story. Tell me the old, old story. I want the old story. I don't need a new story. This is my prayer for you as a church, is that you will recognize the ancient path, that you will recognize the old story, and that if anybody comes along with newfangled stuff, You'll point it out and you'll say, that's newfangled stuff. (laughs) We need people who hear it, who have ears. John Bunyan wrote a a, a book many, many years ago called Pilgrim's Progress. And at one point in the book, Christian, the main character, is standing at a crossroads. And he's traveling with these two foolish men. And as they look at this crossroads, there is... Uh, there, there is one beautiful, nice 
wide path to the left, and there's another wide path to the right, and there's a narrow path right center up this rocky mountain. Well, his two friends and him are debating which path to take, and formalism, that's the name of one friend, formalism, he takes the left path. This one looks nice. He goes left. <coughs> Excuse me. This path leads him into a dark woods. He didn't know that this path was called danger, and he was never seen again. Hypocrisy, it's the name of the other man, he takes the path to the right. And this path leads to many rocks and holes. He didn't know that this path was called destruction. And he fell to his death. Christian paused, and Christian took a drink from the, 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 the fountain. You get what John Bunyan's saying there. And he takes the, the, the narrow path, which is at first the hard path, but it leads to life. Amen. Question, which path are you taking in life? Are you taking the easy paths or are you taking the ancient path? Are you taking the old path? Are you taking the path that is indeed very difficult at times in this world? Do you know where you're going? In Alice in Wonderland, there's this moment where Alice meets this cat called Cheshire Cat. And Alice is standing at a crossroads at this moment. And she, she looks at Cheshire Cat, and she says, Would you tell me which way I ought to go from here? And Cheshire Cat says, Well, it depends a good deal on where you want to go. Alice says, I don't much care where. And Cheshire Cat says, Well, it doesn't matter which way you go. Where do you want to end up? Life or destruction? Now, if you don't care, then it doesn't matter. Listen, take the easiest path. Take whatever path affords your flesh and your sin, your desires. But if you care where you go, you need to care about which path you're on. Amen? Which path, then, are you on? Look at chapter 6, verse 16, one last time. He says, Thus saith the Lord, Stand by the roads and look, and ask for what? I want you to ask for the ancient paths, he says, where the good way is, and walk in it, and find rest for your souls. Ask, he says, for the ancient paths. For these are the pleasurable paths. These are the paths that are sweeter than honey. These are the paths that ultimately will lead you to life. But these also are the paths which confront your actions. They're also the paths 
which asks you to walk away from what you once were and embrace who Jesus is. They are the paths that say you got to walk away from your greed and you got to walk away from your injustice and from your flesh. They are the paths that are initially difficult, but they are, friends, the paths that lead to life. Which are the ancient paths? Which are the paths that Moses walked when he led God's people out of Egypt, out of bondage? Which are the paths that Ruth walked when she trusted the God of Israel? Which are the paths that King David traveled as he was called a man after God's own heart? Which are the paths that Isaiah walked when he prophesied about the coming suffering servant? Which are the paths that that weeping prophet Jeremiah walked? Which are the paths that John the Baptist walked when he declared, prepare ye the way of the Lord? Which are the paths that Mary walked when she discovered there's a baby in her womb? Which were the paths that the Apostle Paul walked when he said, for me to live is Christ and for me to die is gain? Which are the paths that Polycarp walked? One of the early Christians who, at 80-some years old, clung to the Christian faith in the midst of all chaos and in the midst of, uh, of all danger, threatened with his very own life, to the moment that he was burned at the stake. Which path was Polycarp on? Which path did Athanasius walk? when he defended the divinity of Jesus Christ? Which path did Augustine walk when he wrote the city of God? Which path was Martin Luther on when Martin Luther stood up against Rome, against the system, and said, this is not the gospel? Which path did John Calvin walk when Calvin soothed his doubting, fearful congregation saying, God has chosen you. Which path did Richard Sibbs walk? Which path did Lemuel Haynes walk? Which path did Daniel Alexander Payne walk? Which path did George Lyle walk, the first Baptist missionary who went to Jamaica and began a Christian movement in Jamaica? Which path did William Carey walk as he left all that he knew and went to the mission field and gave his entire life to the glory of God? Which path was Charles Spurgeon on? Which path did Elizabeth Elliot walk as she moved back to live among the tribe, the very same people who killed her husband? I'll tell you which path. It was the old path. They were all on the same path. That's the path I want to be on. That's the ancient pathway that leads to life. Guys, the, the, the word of God is sweet. David says it's like honey. It's, a, it's, a sweet, it's sweeter than honey. And Jesus was the prophet, the one prophet, who always told the truth and spoke the very word of God. He is the word of God. He is sweeter than honey. Do you hear him? Do you know Christ? The word of God is always sweet. It's always sweet. If you don't think it's sweet, you haven't yet tasted it. Family, taste and see that the Lord is good. Amen.
Father, we thank you for this time that we can be together in your word. We ask that you would take these truths, seal them with the power of your Holy Spirit in our hearts. Give us ears to hear your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.